We'll be looking this morning at the last chapter in the book of Genesis, chapter 50. It has been a a long journey. For those of you keeping score at home, this is sermon number 62 on the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis covers a such a wide spectrum of foundational issues to the faith. We're going to see that again this morning. But let's begin now by opening up our minds and our hearts to hear from the Lord in His Word. This is the very Word of God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative. Genesis, chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, that place is named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. 
So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived for 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Thus Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. Lord, bless us, encourage us, and draw us closer to yourself through the work of Jesus. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, perhaps you, like me, could hardly believe it as you turned to the passage of the morning and actually saw that it was the end of the book. We've made it together through the book of Genesis, a book that contains so many great and fundamental truths of God's Word. The book of Genesis begins with the creation of all things being good. And then, of course, that creation is marred by man. And sin comes into the world, and we wonder if the world will ever be the same again. And the answer is no and yes. Because it will never be the same as originally created. But from that very moment in the garden, God began the work of recreation, the work of laying the foundations that would be secured in the life and death of His Son. And as we come to the end of this passage... We have come full circle. For you see, at the end of Genesis, we see the true faith that comes from God's people that conquers all things through a trust in the Lord. And so we see Joseph here exiting the scene, but what Joseph acts upon and the faith that he has is a faith that we can have, you and me. And we will see this morning... Lord willing, three things. First, that a true faith is a faith that looks beyond death. 
It knows that death is not the end. True faith looks beyond circumstances and it looks to the Lord's plan. And then finally, true faith looks to the Lord's promises, knowing that all of the Lord's promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Well, let's begin then at the outset of chapter 50 and see how the faith of Joseph looks beyond even death itself. The chapter opens where chapter 49 concluded with the death of the great patriarch Jacob, renamed Israel. Now, we know that this is not an unexpected event. After all, we can say with just a bit of humor that Jacob has been predicting his death for about 13 or 14 chapters of Genesis. And we also saw that final scene last week and we saw him raise his feet up on the bed and breathe his last and die. But even though it is not unexpected, we still feel, don't we, that it's too short a period of time. Perhaps you, like me, wish that there were more than 50 chapters of Genesis, that there was more that we could learn from Jacob, more we could see, more we could hear. It's too short of a time. I'm sure that Joseph felt the same way, but stronger. And I'm sure also Joseph was struck by the fact that strikes many of us when we are experiencing death around us. Where do we go from here? What do I do now, Lord? I've been relying upon my father. I don't know what to do next. You've put me in charge. You see, this is a time of turmoil. It's a time of emotion. It's a time of difficulty. And any of you who have ever experienced death of a loved one or a family member knows what this is like. It's not easy. It's not made easier for us, though, is it? Because we live in a culture that denies the nature of death. Now, I don't mean that death doesn't happen in America in the 21st century, but I mean we pretend and act as if it doesn't. We make up different names for death to avoid saying someone has died. We look in America today at people who are older and we see them as not really having much of a purpose. This is contrary to the way the Bible views the wisdom and experience of the aged among us. It's contrary to the way that most of the world looks at the elder as someone who is worthy of respect. But you see, when you don't worry about what they can do, you don't think about death. You think, I'm young, I'll live forever. If we're honest with ourselves too, our culture is afraid of the unknown of death because it has no answers. So it pushes it off. And worse still, every day we allow the Lord less and less in the public sphere. And so even as we are out with our neighbors, it is difficult to talk about these issues of life and death because we are not permitted to bring the Lord to bear. But you see, for the Christian, death is real and it is a cause for grief. Even as we see here with Joseph, this is the second in command of all of Egypt. And his father passes away and 
Look at the way that the Bible describes this scene. He fell on his father's face and wept. Gentlemen, if you ever needed confirmation that it is okay to weep, you have it here. I don't care what some machismo magazine says. I don't care what the guy in the cubicle down the hall says. Joseph, one of the godliest men in the history of redemption, one of the most powerful men in the history of the world, upon the death of one who was close to him, experienced that grief and he wept because he understood there was loss. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not something that he could get over quickly. Look at this. In verse 3, we see that 70 days the Egyptians mourned formally. And then they took the journey. And then after that, in verse 10, we see that Joseph mourned yet seven more days. Death is not something that we get over quickly. There is a real mourning that takes place. But there is also, for the Christian in the midst of this, a real source of hope. Joseph does something that seems odd, doesn't it? He goes to Pharaoh, and he knows he can't even go directly to Pharaoh because he's in mourning, and that would be embarrassing. And so he sends to Pharaoh's messengers in verse 4, and he says, My father made me swear to him that I would take him to the promised land. Now this is a difficult request for Joseph. He can't speak to the Pharaoh directly. It could be considered an insulting request. What? Egypt isn't good enough to be buried in? What? But you see, Joseph goes to honor the wishes of his father. And you see, it is that desire to honor his father, coupled with his faithfulness throughout all of his life, Pharaoh knows he is a faithful servant and would not ask for something unless it was important. Pharaoh looks at this and he says, this is who Joseph is. I wouldn't have him any other way. When he tells me his word, I know he'll keep it. He's told his father his word. He will keep it. I must help him. So Joseph begins then this hard and difficult task of honoring his father. Why would he even bother? Why do we bother going through these shows of respect in funerals when someone has died? I think it's because grief is important. You see, for the Egyptians, if Joseph had not grieved for his father, they would have looked upon him and said, well, here's a man who's very hard-hearted. He doesn't even care if his father died. But yet, he cannot be just consumed with grief because then the Egyptians would say, well, they don't really have any hope. All this talk that Jacob gave about the God of his fathers, all this talk that Joseph gave about hope and being served and being blessed, it's all words. And so you see, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Joseph shows us here a delicate balance that we face in the face of death. Faith grieves. But faith looks beyond grief to the hope that is found in the Lord. And I think it is this action laid out very practically that allows Joseph to deal with the second thing that will happen to him here in this chapter. 
Something that is exceedingly difficult. We pick it up here in verse 15. Joseph's brothers see that their father is dead and they immediately begin to worry. Now, they have good cause for worry. Not because of who Joseph is, but I want to remind you to go back in your mind's eye several months of our journey through Genesis, and I want you to remember that the greatest comfort, the thing that made Esau put his head on the pillow and sleep like a baby, was he said to himself, as soon as dad is dead, I'm going to kill my brother. He nourished himself with that day after day. You have to know that Jacob's sons knew that story. You don't not tell that story about Uncle Esau. You probably tell it all the time, too, when you say, hey, treat your brother nicely. Let me tell you about my brother. So they're in the background here and they're thinking, well, you know, Joseph has treated us nicely, but I wonder if he only did that because dad was still around. You see, they're driven by the circumstances that are around them. And I think also they don't understand fully the change that has come about. I think they're saying to themselves, you know, if it were us, we'd probably take it out on Joseph. After all, we took it out on him and all he did was be a little bit annoying. And we sold him into slavery. It would make perfect sense here for Joseph to come after us. But you see, the problem here is is that they are new in the faith and they are not understanding not just Joseph, but they're not understanding the very nature of forgiveness. As we read in Matthew 6, that phrase that can seem odd, that you must forgive others or your heavenly Father will not forgive you, we say to ourselves, isn't that contrary to justification by faith? We need to do something in order to be forgiven. And what happens if I don't forgive someone or if I forget to forgive someone? But you see, what our Lord is talking about there is not a mechanistic a mechanistic trade-off of forgiveness. What our Lord is saying here is, if you don't have the kind of heart that forgives, you don't know what forgiveness is. Forgiveness changes you. It releases you from bitterness, from anger, and from pain. But you see, Joseph's brothers here, they're still struggling. They know that a change has come about, a change in them, and they've seen the change in Joseph, but they don't really know how deep it has come, and so they fall back on the family business. You know what the family business is, don't you? Scheming, cheating, and lying. goes all the way back. And so they say, uh, Joseph, you might not have remembered this, but Dad told us to give you a message. Okay, why wouldn't Dad have told me? I'm not sure at all. Who knows? Maybe he was tired. Maybe he wrote it down and left it someplace. I don't know. But he did tell us that the one thing we were to tell you was to be sure that you don't hurt us. That's what Dad said. We could ask him now, but we just buried him. So you're just going to have to take our word on this. And... 
It has this kind of a feel to it, doesn't it? Because they won't even go directly to him at first. They send messengers to their brother. Can you imagine that? Does that happen in your household at times? You know what it's like when one of the siblings sends a courier to mom and dad. Mom, um, my sister said it would be okay if... What? No. Don't send me a courier. Come and speak to me. You see here, they are hoping to scheme and to work around because, you see, you have to understand they have done real wrong. They call their actions evil. Do you see that? You see, they are afraid that Joseph will hate them and pay them back for the evil they have done. And so you see here, they are getting it at least partly. They're not excusing their actions. They know they are guilty. They know they've done evil. And they know in the grand scheme of the scales of justice that they deserve punishment. There's no way around it. But what they don't understand is that God has changed the grand scales of justice. That it is not just an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. That God has changed the grand scales of justice through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you struggle here today with things that you have done, when memories flood back that you are embarrassed about, that you try and push out of your mind, that you would never tell anyone about, you must know that if you have trusted by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you need not fear those memories. You need not fear those failures. There is no accounting for them. They are already accounted for in Christ. And you see, that's what... Joseph's brothers haven't gotten completely yet. They understand, but not fully. You need to understand as well. Because you see, there is real pain in the world. There's not just bad luck of things that happen to us. You see, that's the beginning of what we saw in Genesis. There is real evil in the world that has entered in the place of rebellion against God. People are out there who intend to do harm. There are people out there who get satisfaction from doing harm to others. How many times have you said to yourself as you read a newspaper or as you watch the news, that's crazy. I can't even believe that happened. How could anyone do that? And then the next week you see it again. And it's not because people are crazy. It's not because people aren't educated. It's not because people don't have their needs met. It's because people outside of Jesus Christ are wicked and lost in their sins. And so were you and I. And we must remember this. We don't want a Pollyanna-ish view of the world ignoring the bad things that go on. Bad things happen because people are bad and need redemption in Christ. And Joseph had experienced all this, hadn't he? He'd been hated by his brothers. He'd been treated unjustly by Potiphar's wife. He had been treated indifferently by the cupbearer his whole life. He had been the object of the evil of others. 
We experience it too, do we not? Young people, I'm going to speak very directly to you. You need to understand this. You might even want to write this down. Life is not fair. It is not. You think it is. And you think that is a good complaint to bring up whenever you don't get what you want. Life is not fair. If life were fair, you would not be sitting right now in an air-conditioned room. If life were fair, you would not have the wonderful clothes on your back you have. You would not have come in the cars that you came. You would not have the food waiting for you that you do. Life is not fair. Not everyone is treated equally, and no one tries to balance the scales. And if we understand that, then when attacks come upon us, when attacks come upon our family, when attacks come upon our faith, we know that it is just a part of the way the world is. And instead of being resentful, and instead of being angry, and instead of being frustrated and closing down, we say to ourselves, we must redouble our efforts to work for the kingdom, to see that King Jesus is on the throne, and that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work to change this world that is a mess and is not fair. That is the hope. Not just saying things should work out better. Let's pass some more regulations. Let's pass another law. Let's find some more rules. Let's get some more money. No, the only hope that you have in your life is Jesus and His work. Joseph explains this to his brothers. You see, he'd experienced the pain of the world and he comes with comfort from God. We might ask ourselves, where is our hope? Why isn't God protecting us? Why doesn't God protect His kingdom? Why are Christians being persecuted around the world? Why is the kingdom not advancing? Why are we mocked? The answer is our hope is not in success. Our hope is not in wisdom. Our hope is not in popularity. Our hope is in the Lord. And a lesson that each and every one of us can learn from Joseph is found in these words in verse 19. Am I in the place of God? Here's another good piece of advice to write down. You're not God. Stop trying to act like it. You are not in complete control. You cannot right all wrongs. You cannot make sure everything is balanced. You know what this is like, parents, around Christmas time, don't you? You try and show your children that you love all of them the same. Because you do. And so usually it's the moms because dads don't want to work that hard, they get out the sheets of paper and they write down every gift that we have for every kid. And we write down how much each one costs. And we want to have the same cost. And then we have a problem because the kids are different ages and we say we've got the cost the same, but this one has 15 presents and this one has two. What do we do? I don't know. Let's let's wrap up a box of spaghetti or something and hand it to them. We try everything we can to keep everything equal, but you know we can't. That's not our job. We are not God. We have to also understand that we cannot see all things. 
There's a wonderful illustration in this that those who are given to crafts can understand. Have you ever seen a beautiful tapestry? With all the colors, the brilliance. And then have you taken that tapestry and turned it around? It looks like a complete mess, doesn't it? All kinds of threads going here and there in different colors and there's no shape. We have to understand that often what the Lord allows us to see now is that back of the tapestry. God, why didn't I get that job? It would have helped me so much. Lord, why didn't you let me marry that lady? Lord, why did I only have two kids? Lord, why? Lord, why? Lord, why? Well, let me tell you, you will not see the front of the tapestry until glory. There are exceptions. One is Joseph, an example given to us for our instruction. Joseph steps back and he says, you know, the mess of this back that you see, brothers, with all of the hate and the anger and the injustice and the sin and the filth, let me show you the front of the tapestry. God was preserving a people. And He was converting you. And He was bringing my Father to me. This is the blessing that God has brought. We only saw the mess in the back. But think now, brothers. Look at the picture in the front. You see, God can overrule evil and bring good out of evil. But it doesn't negate evil. You still will see it in your life. After all, what brought about the greatest good that the world has ever seen? The redemption of the people of God by Jesus Christ was brought about, Peter tells us, in that great sermon in Acts 2, it was brought about by the wickedness of the men who were murderers and sought through the wickedness of their heart to slay Jesus. But God brought good out of it. Does that mean they were doing God a favor? Does that mean that was really good? Does that mean we should be happy about their wickedness of heart? No, but what it means is we need to look past ourselves and to the Lord. The third and final thing that we see this morning is that faith not only looks beyond death and it not only looks beyond the pain that we have to God's providence, but it also looks to the Lord's promises. You see, Joseph comes back after having told his brothers that he will care for them and their little ones. And we get a picture of God's blessing to him in a small way. God has been with Joseph and he blesses him with a long life and he has blessings of children. He gets to live to see his children's children and they are counted as his own. He gets to faithfully teach them and to give care and concern to them and to pray for and with them. Every blessing that we receive is but a foretaste of what God has prepared for us. And so when you have those sweet opportunities of blessing, rather than constantly trying to recapture them again, praise the Lord for them. And long to be with Him forever. For you see, those are just the first fruits. What Joseph shows us is that he will carry this blessing and this promise on to the land of promise. He 
is about to follow in the footsteps of his fathers. He is making those promises his own, for he turns to his brothers and he says, in verse 24, I am about to die, guys. What I want you to do is I want you to take my bones to be buried in the promised land. God will visit you. He will surely intervene. Now we have an exercise with that, don't we? We see God's promise to visit His people and we turn the page, right? Turn the page in your Bible. God's visiting, right? That's wonderful. Turn it back. That was 400 years. That was almost twice the length of the history of our country. It's one page. 400 years. Do you think sometime in the 400 years people got impatient? Do you think sometime in the 400 years people said, you know, this Joseph, yeah, God's going to visit us. Yeah, right. It's been 138 years. How long do you think it'll be? I don't know. It's been 227 years. How long do you think it'll be? I don't know. It's been 343 years. How long do you think it'll be? Well, it'll be exactly the amount of time that God has decreed. But it will never fail. And Joseph, in his wisdom, leaves a tangible sign for them. You know, I was watching what I don't normally do. You know, these television specials that claim to be Bible history? And they're mostly pretty horrible. But I came in on a scene that really struck me. Because you see, in here, we, we tend to just hear these words and we don't understand. And there was a scene in which one of the Hebrews was taking a young Moses into an area. And there was a tomb sitting there. And he brought the young Moses in and he said, These are the bones of our father Joseph. And Joseph has promised that we will be visited and we trust in the Lord God and He will take us from this slavery as surely as He is sitting there in the tomb. And I thought, we need to make this promise that real to us too. Like it's in the room with us. Like we could touch it, bang on it. It's real. That's how it was for Joseph. He had a great faith. Do you know with all of the goodness that Joseph had and all of the blessings and all of the faith, do you know that only this incident is recorded in Hebrews 11? This is the penultimate expression of his faith. That he counted that his bones would be carried. Isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Hasn't He gone before us? Hasn't He given us a sign that we can know that we are truly headed to the land of promise? Are you preparing for that land of promise today? Are you trusting the Lord that He will carry you there? Joseph was. Through all of his trials, through all of the pain, through all of the sin. This should be an encouragement to you and to me. That our lives are safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You this morning, Lord, that You have given to us this story of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the work of the life of Joseph. Lord, we ask that You would encourage us, that You would equip us, and that You would draw us closer to Yourself.
This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.